Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. This is part two of a two-part interview with Terry Mandel. Please enjoy the rest of her story. Then I think the next piece that's really important for this story is in July of 2021, I'm sitting here in my office in Berkeley working away, and I get an email from someone, a name I don't recognize, and it says, Hello, my name is Anna. I'm a 16-year-old student at the blah, blah, blah Shula in Cologne. And in my special history class, we're studying the lives and fates of what happened to Jewish girls who went to our school. And my assignment is someone named Ingalora Silberbach. And I found her name on a an unpublished family tree on Ancestry.com, and you're the email contact. Could you please make that public so I can do my assignment? And if you'd like, if you could tell me what your connection to her is. I mean, I'm like, oh my. God, I was just blown away. So I, you know, I'm now in my, I was in my, you know, late six, the middle sixties at this point. And this had all been kind of quiescent for a long time. Like just, it's the background of my life. My cousin's memoir had come out. I learned a lot more through reading that and copy editing it in its earlier forms, et cetera. But, you know, I, I was going on with my life mm-hmm. and this it, email it wasn't, it wasn't urgent the way it was when you were a little girl. Well, it you wasn't, know. I mean, I just, like all of us, I had so many other things happening in my life. By this time, my mother was long past, you know, my aunt had passed, everybody was gone. Um, and so I mean, when I say blah, 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 Shula, she gave an actual name of a school, but I didn't know. I'd never heard of it before. I never knew the name of the school my mother went to. And so I was just blown away. So I immediately write back to her and I said, you don't know this yet. You just hit the jackpot. Uh, let's make a Zoom date. And I'd like to understand more about what it is you, you'd like. What would help your assignment? What is it that you're... So we began this amazing collaboration. I reached out to my sister and my cousin, and they sent me all the stuff that I had never seen or never understood what it meant um, and started photographing every page of everything. And um, I made a, you know, a photo album on Zoom so that Anna could receive that. I notate, I put it all in chronological order. I notated what I knew about it. And 
So we start this dialogue back and forth. But wait, so why hadn't you known this information if your sister and cousin had it well, at this point? You know, it's just, we just hadn't sat around talking about these things. Okay. My sister had, after our mother died, she took, you know, a lot of the family memorabilia. And so it just sat there in a box. And when I asked for it, I got it all. And all of a sudden I'm looking at it with a lot more curiosity. And now it turns out I have somebody who's on the receiving end who actually can add, you know, meaning and context to all these things that I had no, we, none of us had any way of understanding. My cousin knew a lot more. His mother was much more open with he and his brother. And so, you know, he knew a lot more about that than I did. He had things that I'd never seen, you know, that his mother had had, like my mother's birth certificate, mm -hmm. for example, um, which I didn't even know existed because when I, years before, applied for my German citizenship, I brought a, a notarized page from the recorder's office in Cologne and the consul general at the time said to me, oh, well, it would be a lot better if we had your mother's original birth certificate. And I oh, said, well, so sorry, can you believe how thoughtless my grandparents were when they were fleeing for their lives from the Nazis to not think about the effect that it would have on me to not have my mother's birth certificate. And he just turned beet red <laughs> and uh, said, oh, I, I guess it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> but you know, it turns out that I actually have it. I have it now, uh, but it was somewhere mixed in with my, my aunt's collection. Anyway, so this opened up this beautiful opportunity to learn so much and to steep myself in something that I really had not been um, invited to investigate, right? I'm the person who always gets to the root of things, right? That's what I'd been doing my whole life. And finally, now I had a chance to do that with this, you know, this vast territory I'd been told to you know, what territory, you know, I'd been gaslit mm -hmm. my whole life around investigating. This is not unique to, to Jews. This is not unique to Americans. This is not unique to our generation. This is a universal experience. I have been talking a lot with a lot of people recently whose families come from all sorts of different places. And there's usually either the families talk about nothing else. Everything goes back to the genocide um, of whether it was the Armenian genocide or whether it was, you know, anyway, it's, it's a big topic and it's a source of a lot of pain ongoingly, but it's talked about or it's not talked about. Sometimes that changes as people get older, they sometimes begin to be interested and, you know, uh, 
tell stories that they wouldn't have told when they were younger. But I, so I had this unparalleled opportunity to do this with Anna. She wanted to know, you know, a timeline of sort of big highlights of my mother's life. And um, it gave me a chance to really spend a lot of time talking with my sister and my cousin. And we kept sharing the different versions of the apocryphal stories that we'd all heard. Um, it was it was pretty fascinating, actually. You know, well, I heard this story and then I'm like, yeah, but the dates, I'm looking at the documents and the dates that you're giving me cannot, it cannot have been because, you know, this and that. So it was uh, a very rich time for me. And one of the outcomes of this research, there were two outcome, key outcomes for the student and the school was that she was going to write an article uh, about my mother's life and it would be published. And um, she decided, even though my aunt didn't go to their school, to include my aunt uh, and her experience as much as she could in the story, which was quite wonderful. And so, uh, and the school was going to lay a Stolperstein for in their courtyard for which they had were doing for all the students and faculty and um, staff members Jewish of Jewish origin who were whose lives were upended if not ended by the Holocaust and Stolpersteine are I didn't I didn't tee up a a way to show this to you on my screen, but I can show you a little bit of a picture. Uh, Stolperstein is a um, a ten by ten centimeter brass engraved plaque, which is set flush into the ground, typically into the sidewalk in front of the last chosen home of someone whose life was upended, if not ended. Mm -hmm. And so here's a picture of the stones that were laid. Uh, my mother is there in the lower right-hand corner at the school. And that was from the ceremony that they did. And so when she was telling me that they were going to do that at the school, I realized we could do that at the home for our whole family, not just for my mother. Mm -hmm. And so I asked my cousin and my sister if they would be open to doing that. I didn't feel like I had the authority to make that decision for them. And they said, yeah, if you do all the work, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll go along, you know, we'll be supportive. So I got on in September of 2021 or so, we got on the list and they said, we don't know when it'll be. It could take a long time because COVID and people whose families died in the camps get priority, um, but we'll let you know. So that was it. Months and months and months go by. Fast forward to May of 2022, and I get an email saying, would you prefer the seventh, the 18th or 19th of 
October this year. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, Tuesday, Wednesday, doesn't make any difference to me. I'm going to be there. And so, um, so I went last fall Wow. to visit um, the first time I'd ever been in Cologne and to do this ceremony of laying these um, Stolpersteine for my mother's family. So amazing trip. Uh, so much to say about that. Again, really mindful about the time um, that we have. Uh, just for people who are curious, Stolpersteine uh, are, it's the largest decentralized memorial in the world. In May of this year, the uh, the man who started this, Gunter Demnig, laid the 100,000th plaque and they are now in all the 31 countries from which Jews were deported or murdered and murdered. And so uh, this is a picture of the five plaques that I was able to lay for the family um, in front of their, in front of their beautiful home that was, you know, stolen from them. So that's their, that's their house. That's the, the sky from the city starting to cut cut up the sidewalk for the stones to, to lay in. So I had the opportunity, I met the people who, the people who own the home now, generously invited me in. Um, and, but they had been told 20 years before by an elderly neighbor and the grandson of the architect the chain of custody of the house from when it was built in 1911 until when they bought it in uh, 2002. And guess what? The 20 years that the silver box owned that house had been completely erased from the historical chain, according to these neighbors. So when the homeowner heard that there was he they get the the city sends a courtesy notice to property owners because it's in the public right of way that a Stolperstein ceremony was happening in front of their house one week from today. He was very upset because he was sure they had made a mistake, and so. I won't go into all the details, but when he he was encouraged to speak to them and they explained to him, we have the bound address books from the 30s where every single person who lived in the house, their name, their birth date, their relations, you know, uh, phone numbers, if they had them, all that, it was all there. So anyway, um, they welcomed me into their house. I heard this story actually a couple of days later that they had 
assumed that it was a mistake and how they had come to that conclusion. And I heard that in a classroom where I was um, meeting with a group of 16 year olds. I brought the student, Anna, who had done all this work. And they were all blown away that, you know, I mean, they couldn't even believe that this had happened. Um, and I asked them, what do you know about what was going on? You know, what was happening with, in, with your families during the war? And there's just this, everyone's looking down at the ground and their shoulders are slumped over. And one girl raises her hand, pink hair, stands up. Oh, my grandfather was a socialist. And he told us all these stories about the resistance and this and that. And the more she filled with the pride of that, the more her classmates looked like they wanted to disappear into the floor. Mm -hmm. And I, when I said to them, oh, then we were the same. And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? I said, my mother never talked about it either. And, and I said, so we have that in common. And it just opened up this incredible space for some real connection. And so I realized something about these two experiences of erasure, really profound, was uh, it, it called to me in a way that's led me to um, launch a not-for-profit called the Unerasure Project, which is really focused on reclaiming hidden legacies in ourselves, in our communities, and in the world. And I am on the verge of going back to Germany in October for four months. Oh, not five days. I mean, yeah. I was all together in Germany for nine days last time, and it felt like a blur. Five months. I mean, it felt like a huge oh, wow. period of time. So much happened. Um, and it was emotionally, you know, uh, quite powerful. And I'm going there for fundraising and to be in dialogue and to try to get some actual pilot projects going. So I've been working on this full time since the uh, end of last year. And then about three weeks ago, I get an email out of the blue from one of the researchers at the National Socialism Documentation Center in Cologne, which is a city agency that is dedicated to really, you know, putting all the historical pieces back together. And um, so they're the ones who organize the Stolpersteine, you know, that are laid in the town. They do all the background research and they they have a lot of literature that they share with you know descendants who come you know to do these ceremonies and learn more about their families' pasts. And I get an email from this researcher I know quite well, hadn't been in touch with him for months. 
He said, I wanted to let you know that there's a Stolperstein Steiner ceremony coming up when you'll be here in October um, for someone who, from your family. And I just thought, how can that be? Mm. And he had asked me a year ago, he said, oh, I think I found some family members and they weren't on our family tree and I'd never heard of them. And I asked my cousin and he said, no, no, you know, Silberbach, it was a very common name like Smith, you know, among Jews in those days, there were a lot of them. They weren't, we weren't related. So I blew him off a year ago. So he writes to me and he said, I'm quite sure that you're related to her and she was murdered in the camps. And how you're related is that she was your great-grandfather's sister. And I said, well, what do you mean? My great-grandfather had one brother. He said, no, your great-grandfather had seven siblings. Mm. The one that you know about got out. Your grandfather had died. Your great-grandfather had died. And everybody else, the six other siblings and their entire families were murdered between 1942 and 1945. And my first response to this, I had, I did, I had a busy schedule and I, you know, I got this just before a, you know, couple of hours Zoom call. And I wrote back and I said, wow, I mean, we've always had such a small family and you've just added a bunch of people to my family tree. Thank you or something to that extent. And but he had CC'd several people on this email, including someone who's become one of my closest friends, who's German and very knowledgeable now about my whole family. And she wrote me back about an hour later and said, oh my God, I'm so it was so devastating to read that. How are you doing? And I'm looking at her email and I'm like, and I realized I hadn't even been able to take it in. I literally had not been able to take in that the erasure that the Nazis perpetrated had been mirrored of lives, had been mirrored by my family's erasure of their memories. And uh, talk about an identity crisis. I literally had been told my whole life that no one in our family had died. There are now 12 people on my family tree, and I'm sure they're not the only ones. Mm -hmm. Now I'm certain that they can't be the only ones, but I have 12 people. My grandfather's aunts, uncles, and cousins who didn't leave Cologne in 1938 or 39. I don't know why. I have no idea. Were they close? Were they not speaking to each other? 
did were they like my grandfather had been just saying this can't go on the guy will get pushed out of office or somebody will kill him you know i mean whatever the same kinds of things many people in this country have been saying in recent years about certain fascistic leaders um who we won't name so i i started to try to digest this and it dropped me into a very um, dark place that I began to recognize as really familiar to a place that I had dropped into many, many times over the course of my life and never understood what was happening. It Depression doesn't quite cover it. It's more like really dropping into a void and just free floating, you know, like having not really perceiving any way out. I don't, didn't know really how I got there and I didn't really know how I could get out. And, um, you know, now we have language. Now we can talk about PTSD. We can talk about intergenerational trauma or ancestral trauma, um, inherited trauma, transgenerational trauma, but we had no language for that. And our, certainly my, my parents and grandparents, there was nothing, nobody knew anything about epigenetics. You know, there wasn't, it wasn't, still most people don't know about epigenetics, but you know, now we know there's actual science that shows that our genetic inheritance includes these, you know, emotional, undigested experiences, which we now call trauma, get passed on genetically. Mm -hmm. um, not just, I'm, I'm sure environmentally as well, but, but they do get passed on genetically. So I would say that it's the most profound identity shift that I have um, ever encountered. And I wrote back when I realized that I had just missed the enormity of this. When I first wrote back, I wrote a much longer response to the researcher. And I said, this is, this is devastating to hear. And I'm very, I, I'm grateful to know. I'd rather know than not know. I believe, I mean, here I am, founding something called the unerasure project right and commemorating these people that had been erased yeah so here is here is an opportunity for me to you know really understand live and in the moment there's nothing theoretical about this you know i don't recommend people take you know like unerasure is what everybody should be, you know, going after, like joy, you know, it's comes with some caveats. Um, and even when you're choosing it and pursuing it as much as I am, it can still throw one for a big loop. So I've made a lot of progress, you know, in terms of working with that and 
finally, finally understanding, finally understanding why my mother never, ever wanted to talk about this. I, I literally could not make sense of it. Now it makes sense to me. I'm not, you know. Are you saying I, because she knew of all those people that oh, died? Yeah. And she Absolutely. just, she just wasn't going to talk. It about was it. just, it was it the was choice. That they, it was the choice that they all made. It is a very, in our generation, uh, my friends and a growing group of people I know as, you know, first generation descendants or, you know, first generation Americans, we call ourselves second generation because we didn't, we weren't there to experience it directly. So we're the second generation to this particular genocide. Um, virtually everybody's family, it's not universally true, but many, many more than not that I've close, met. Close enough to universal. And it's, and then I had my girlfriends from high school over here the other day most of them not Jewish, some of them first-generation American, kids like me, their families, exactly the same stories. They did not know. Their parents did not want to talk about it because they wanted a better life for their kids. They wanted to get on with it. They didn't want to burden us with this without understanding that not talk, that there was going to be a burden not talking about it was not the antidote to not to, burdening to the to, it didn't unburden us yeah um but they didn't know that you know i mean it was it was innocent the erasure of the of the son of the grandson of the architect of my grandparents house that's not the same not the same 20 years you don't just erase 20 years of people living in a house, you cannot do that without intent. It's a very different, and there are parallels. You know, it's kind of, it reminds me of, you know, what we, what we talk about as Stockholm syndrome, which is when a victim of an abuser identifies, you know, their only source of love, however tortured and skewed it may be, is still their only protector as well. Mm -hmm. And on some very, you know, in some very twisted way, the decision to keep quiet felt safer than talking about it. And I have no, I understand it so much better than I ever did. And it still pains me terribly because I still am trying to sort it out. Those kids in that classroom, they're, yeah, and my friends, all my friends in Germany, their parents won't talk about it. Their grandparents wouldn't talk about it. It's created tremendous tension in families of, of Germans. They know that their, their parents may not have been high, you know, Nazi officials, yeah. but they know that they were involved in some way. They were bystanders. If nothing else, they were, they were bystanders 
without even judging them, the silence itself has been toxic. And so the Unerasure Project, honestly, is I, I just, I'm, I'm still coming up with the language for, you know, what we're doing, but, you know, we're, we're building community across cultures and across generations to transcend the history we've inherited by making our own, by making our own, by choosing. It's one thing we all live with so much pain that we actually have never lived through, may never have lived through ourselves. Mm -hmm. Present day refugees, you know, people who are, you know, uh, genocide happening in this time, I, I'm, I'm not excluding them from this at all. They're having that lived experience. Um, but, you know, what we're trying to do is we're tapping the inspiration of the arts and facilitating dialogue and, and, and education and advocating for hands-on engagement, not only in Germany where I'm starting, because of course that's where my, that's where this history began for me, but globally. And so that's why I'm going to Germany. I'm going to talk about it. I want to listen to what people, you know, what they need, what they want. Those kids in that classroom, they wanted a, a way to get their hands on something. They wanted to have the experience that Anna had with me. And in Portugal, same thing with the students there. They were like, I could write an email to someone across the world and change both our lives forever. How can I do that? You know, I want to do that. And so that's where I'm formulating, you know, some ways that we can actually give people, whether they ever know anything more historically about what happened. We can't just live with it in the, you know, in the silence and the isolation without it continuing to do its damage. And even if the damage is just limiting our capacity to be fully, full-hearted, wholehearted, you know, citizens of the world. Um, to me, that's enough damage and genocide continues and we have to do whatever we can. And we're part of that. It's a part of all of our legacies. And we are, we're now, somebody said, um, uh, Jonas Salk, uh, said something to like, uh, our job is to be the best ancestors we can be. And I, I think that's just a beautiful, a beautiful thing, whether you have children or don't have children, we're all ancestors to the next generations mm -hmm. that come, you know, behind us. And that's what our parents wanted and our grandparents wanted for us. And now we, maybe we have a few, we understand things a little bit differently so that we can begin to bring some new skills and tools to that particular effort to create a world that really reflects our values, you know, of dignity and respect and, um, you know, uh, the ability for people to live lives of meaning and contribution, 
regardless of who they love, what they eat, who they, you know, how they um, pray or celebrate, um, you know, the languages that they speak, the color of their skin, uh, their sexual or gender identities, you know, none of those things should be restrictive and exclusive for oh, only these people, um, you know, get to create, have the right to create lives of, of meaning and contribution. So I know I've been talking nonstop for quite a while, but yeah, I, I, I had different questions along the way, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to interrupt because it was more important to hear what you had to say. A couple of things came up towards the end. I was thinking of, of the last story in my book about masters of change. That's about people who've had the rug pulled out from under them and have to rebuild who they are is about uh, adoption. And, and, and towards the end, you're, whatever you're describing, it sort of paralleled what it's like to be adopted and then, you, but you don't know that you're adopted and then you find out that you're adopted. And then it's like, you know, what, what that does to people or, or just to be adopted to begin with, but especially those who aren't aware that they're adopted. And then at some point find out just the, the whole thing about identity and, you know, who am I connected to is, is just a human, um, it's, it's just a foundation of being human. Yeah. And I think it's a both and. To answer those questions. Of course. I think it's a both and, like everything is to me. We, we are, you know, we live in paradox. Um, I mean, I think that's a, an evolution to live in paradox rather than live in, you know, black or white. I think it's very important to know where you came from, particularly because it's important to make the distinction between where you came from and where you're intending to go. So I, it, to me, it's I can I can understand the drive to really know that from a from a for an from an adoptee's perspective and maybe for people that's enough but for me that's just the beginning and that whether people find out this is the thing i'm really wanting to emphasize with with people i talk to now is that I, I understand it. If you can get that, I encourage it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is not about, first of all, it's going to be hard and it may be blocked and that can create all sorts of tension that may be, you know, not really that helpful. But the more, so the kids asked me, I'm going to share this because I think it's quite relevant. The kids asked me, uh, they were going to make a presentation uh, a few weeks after we were together to on Holocaust Remembrance Day to a group of Jewish people. And they said, if you were in the audience, we have five minutes. What would you like to hear from us? 
which is an amazing question. They left this to the very end though of two hours. I had three minutes to answer. And I said, well, so first of all, don't apologize. I said, you didn't do anything. And, I, and I've heard the apologies and I appreciate them, but don't waste your time. I don't think that's useful. I said, I don't know about the other people in the room, but I know that if I were there, the one thing that I'm really interested in hearing is knowing the history that, that you've, you know, they've had their Holocaust education over a number of years by then. How are you going to live your life differently? How is it informing mm -hmm. how you are and how you intend to be in the world? You know, Germany is filled with refugees from the Middle East in particular. And so I said, how is it for you? How is this, does this inform you when you're on the train every day and you see people who dress differently, smell differently, eat differently, pray differently, speak a different language? Just what, not even action, just what comes to your mind? How curious are you? How open are you? How compassionate are you? How, you know, just what happens? This is what that 80 year, by now, 80 some year old history in those musty old books, that's what this is for. It isn't for, it's the both and. It's yes, you have to know the history in order to choose the history that you want to make, but you are history makers. That's what I want to hear about. That's the value of this education, you know, as far as I'm concerned. As a Jewish person, you know, as a person who wants to, you know, help create a world of more respect, dig dignity, and meaning for everyone. And we all have to do that. It doesn't end. You know, it's not like this is something you, you can do on November, you know, 9th, and then you don't have to think about it the rest of the year. So that's kind of where I am with this. And I bless all the, the people who are searching just for those kinds of roots. It's, it's important to know, but it's not the only thing. It's not the end of the, it's not the end of that discovery process. I think it's quite the beginning. And even if you think, you know, your family like me, I'm not adopted, but I just got this mind blowing. He accidentally kind of accidentally information that my great grandfather had seven siblings, only one of whom survived and that no i did not come from a family that didn't lose anybody in the holocaust and you know i mean not that that entitled me to anything but it it left this it just doesn't make sense there's something here that just doesn't make it doesn't add up mm -hmm. and it is a relief to know it but it's also a lot of pain you know and our job is if we're lucky that we find community um, and build a toolkit 
around which we can work with this, you know, discovery process. And then like I advised the kids in the classroom to make use of it, do something with that, do something with that that liberates some capacity, some love, some, you know, ability to reach out across the divides. So I'm meeting children of perpetrators. I'm reading books by people who are discovering horrible things about their families and have are working with that material. And I feel honestly like their kin. I don't see them as other. But I've also encountered the very comfortable people who are totally clueless and haven't done their work. And I won't go into any of those stories, but you know, they're 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 everywhere. They're there in Germany, they're here in the United States. Um, you know, we find parts of ourselves all the time. I do anyway, that's shut down, that's in denial, that, you know, isn't really seeing things as they are. And so how do I find, how do I make a space within which it's possible to just sit with that? I don't have to love it. I don't have to like it. I don't even have to understand it, but just to be willing to spend that time together, things start to change. And and, and that's what my friend Cecilia is trying to do with her book is to have a way for people to sit with these things that people just want to not have any connection to but you're you're using all this energy to not be connected because you're still connected right exactly and so to sort of like instead of using the energy to suppress memory and history and shame and pain to transform that energy into a better use and and into something that will hopefully help prevent these kind of things from recurring because we're we we will never be free from risk of fascism that's just like that comes with the human race and it's not going away and we need to you know keep it in our in our sights and, and and one way of doing that is to you know look at the painful parts of our history and then and then find ways to to do something with that information other than just feel anger ashamed guilty all of those things don't those just like push it back into suppression or yeah, well, look, I mean, we're seeing it on the front pages today with the Spanish soccer, uh, the head of Spanish soccer. Yeah. Getting called. I didn't do anything wrong. Like, on the carpet, his mother have, having a uh, 
uh, fasting at the church. You oh, know, is she fasting at the church? She's fasting at the local church until her son is not being hounded anymore by blah, 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 blah. You know, so. But hold on, just for the, in the future, if anybody's listening to this, like this woman soccer star got un, uninvitedly kissed on the lips by the head of the soccer and, and the guy is saying it, the, it, and there was nothing wrong with it. It was consensual. And it was just, a, she actually started it. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. We all know that there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a, a moment in time where even with video evidence that there are plenty of people who will say that didn't happen. Right. So, it's just, um, so anyway, all I'm saying is this continues. The Me Too movement, just, it's still brand new. Black Lives Matter, still brand new. You know, uh, all the stuff now coming out with the, you know, what happened to the Native American children in the boarding schools uh, with Canada's work and some things happening in the United States, just brand new this is 2023 and um so we have there's plenty of work to do on a you know on a global level people can pick their projects i was you know um initiated into this particular stream, this particular story is my entry point. Um, it is, but it's clearly um, a universal yeah. experience and opportunity. And the question is just how can we, how can we make our way towards a different kind of society that we do not pass, you know, this kind of um, secrecy and denial on these hidden legacies have a high, high cost to us individually and us collectively. And um, so I'm hoping that the Unerasure Project will contribute to that. And, um, you know, I'm so blessed to be finding such a, um, you know, a warm welcome in Germany among Germans who've been feeling all the same things on their end and wanting to support ways for us all to, you know, join hands across any perceived divides um, to figure out how we move forward together. So to me, this, you know, the identity question, I think now after, you know, several weeks of working with this and, and I've been at this sort of working with myself for a long time, so that's pretty quick. And of course it will continue. 
but I would say that, you know, now I'm it even more motivates me. Mm -hmm. Not that I could be any more motivated, but, you know, I'm inspired even more. I'm touched so deeply um, by how important this is. There will never be an end to it. My father's family was from Belarus. No records, no possibility of getting any records. I, I can't fly to Belarus, you know, um, and, and expect to come out alive. So much less with any documentation. So, you know, it's very odd to be saying, wow, I've got so much access and still be finding out things anew after all these decades and decades and decades and decades since these things happened since before I was born. So, so what are, what are the, what are the two biggest problems that not knowing this has caused and what are the two biggest benefits of mm. people hearing these knowing knowing the truth knowing really what happened wow okay um well i think the costs of course they show up really differently for different people so it's it's a it's a bit of a tough question i can say for myself that my sense of being well how do i say this consistently available for really being engaged in the present has been hampered by, you know, kind of like ballasts without even knowing exactly what's been going on. So, you know, you read books of people who've been through grotesquely violent and abusive childhoods and wonder how they ever managed. But it seems very specific and particular, you know, to them. And I can say, I didn't have an experience like that. So why is it that sometimes I just can't get my, wrap my head around something or be out in the world or, you know, keep going on like, something will happen that will trigger kind of that dropping into the void that I described. Mm -hmm. So for other people, it could look completely different. People having, you know, blowing up in anger or shutting down in relationship or, um, you know, always looking for uh, the next job can't ever stay with any, I mean, it can, there's a million ways in which this manifests in people's lives. Um, and how much suffering anybody goes through, it's, there's no scale. The, so I would say, instead of answering sort of the two, I would just say 
that the that the biggest downside is that we're not all there. We're not able consistently, reliably to show up in the present, in the present, mm -hmm. because we've got stuff, much of which we may have no idea about. And it isn't my parents failed in this way or my ex was that kind of a person. It's forget all of that. That's that. Th yes, there may be stories, but there's something that we carry that we didn't choose that we may not even know about. We may have an inkling, whether it's comes out as shame, guilt, frustration, um, you know, insomnia, um, mental illness, you know, who knows? We don't know. So I think, and, and we're alone with that. That's what we wake up with in the middle of the night. That's that, you know, um, hard night of the soul kind of experiences that everybody has or they're so depressed they don't even notice or checked out. And that happens a lot too. So, and so what's on the other side of that? It's not like, here's my magic wand, you know, ping, you know, now everything's fantastic. It's nothing like that. I don't have the six point plan for going from what may be a very, outwardly productive, but inwardly, you know, fraught kind of a life to, you know, the perfect enlightened experience. But I do believe in my own experience and in the experience that I have working with clients, you know, over now many, many, many decades uh, and friends is that every little bit that we we can let go of, cut off some of that ballast. There's more of us available. There's more of us, you know, to be connected to what's really deeply meaningful to each of us, which may not be the thing that we've been focusing all our attention and energy on. It may not, you know, being the best housekeeper in the world or, you know, making the most money in the world or whatever it was that we've set ourselves up to do may turn out to not be the thing that may be covering up that may be our strategy for you know suppressing just like somebody in our many people in our in our our lineages suppressed and look strategies are good they're necessary they're important but they're not the same as really living in the moment in our authentic selves and so it yeah coping coping is not not um compatible with freedom i would say it's not equivalent with freedom i wouldn't i'm not sure that i would say that it's not compatible i think that this is a this is a process and in any process I would love to say that once you've made this step, you can never 
take a half step back. That's not right. been my experience. No, nope. <laughs> I've taken leaps and then had to go back and crawl over all that ground, you know, again, yeah. uh, to get there on more solid ground and on more solid feet. But yes, I, I agree with you in the, in the sense that, um, I mean, I think that we choose by default to get by. Mm -hmm. And that looks different and feels different and is defined differently by everybody. Whatever that is. And it's rationalized differently by everybody. Yes, but the quality of the experience, the aha, the eureka uh, moment that comes when we drop into or you know, do the quantum leap up to a state where there's just more energy, more capacity, more comprehension, and more more just being true to our own lived experience to be able to distinguish between what we're living with and what you know we've we're, we've actually lived through those are two very it's a very subtle can be a subtle but i think it's a crucial distinction for us to be able to make We've all lived with things we may not have lived through. I mean, when that came to me, when I realized that, it was just like, again, sort of head exploding um, moment of realizing that's not just my experience. That's not like the kid who's been massively abused at home or a domestic violence survivor or someone who's, who's you know, a refugee from a, a horrible situation in their country. Yes, and we all live with things that we may not ourselves have lived through. And the question is, how do we use that as a launch pad, that history that we inherited as a launch pad for the history that we now can choose to make. Mm -hmm. And that choice means everything. So that's instead of living by default, that we live by design. Mm -hmm. And it's not, I'm not, this is not intellectual. This is not, you know, it may sound very therapeutic California kind of language to people, but it's, it's very just one foot in front of the other. It looks and feels very different when we operate out of choice mm -hmm. than when we operate out of, you know, just whatever the default was. And there are lots and lots of ways we can do that. The Unerasure Project is searching now. You know, I have a hypothesis and our programs, if we're lucky enough to get funded and pilot them you know, we will learn at every step what actually is going to help. Mm -hmm. Will writing poetry or, you know, making sculptures or doing music or putting on a play, what it'll be for each person is going to be 
part of their discovery process. It's not ever going to be, here's the six steps. Right. As, as long as I'm around, I can't imagine that there may be six. There might, there might be certain principles, but how principles. to actually carry those out right. is going to be unique, you know, for each person, I would think. Yeah. And it may look very different in Germany than it will look in, in Peru, where one of the descendants that I met recently, who was a classmate, whose family member was a classmate of my mother's, she wants to use this, this uh, pedagogy of this history teacher with the teachers there to for the kids who are studying what happened with Pinochet, the Pinochet regime, because that's what they're living with that they didn't themselves live through. And you know what? It's completely applicable, right? Because it's an approach. Mm -hmm. So what I'm presenting or trying to, you know, articulate is an approach to how we begin to grapple with this. Not, yes, there's individual work to do to people for people who are inclined in that direction. I will always continue to do my own personal work, but that doesn't prevent me from being in community around that, which will be a big improvement. And more importantly, I hope that it will have an impact in the world because, you know, that's the thing about a system is it, 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 it has lots of different domains. Um, but when you're working with the system, you've got to work the whole continuum. Right. Yeah. And so this system of of silence and suppression needs, in my estimation, to give way to, um, you know, to dialogue and and collective engagement and how that'll show up and how I hope this will. Con I know this the world needs for this to continue long after I won't be here any longer. Um, and I'm hoping that I will be able to, to help it root itself sufficiently that it will go on long after I'm here. Cause I don't have an answer, but I am sure that I've been called that I've spent my whole life. I was tr trained for this, you know, this makes sense of my whole life, my whole journey in my family um in a way that i never ever could have envisioned and imagined and that i think is i wish everyone could have the experience of find of feeling of knowing they're called and having the universe feed them you know synchronicity after synchronicity after synchronicity like I've been having, um, you know, that just keeps reverberating. Oh, I know this is, I don't know where this is going, but I know I'm meant to be here, you know, on this doing walk. This, yeah. Doing this, so, and well, you have yeah. that with the Identity Podcast, you know, um, it's such a, a beautiful, beautiful thing that you're 
that you're doing and clearly called to? Yeah, it, it, I was really searching for like, what can I help people with? And, and it just landed in my lap one day, 7.30 a.m. I was in this existential crisis and the two words identity loss landed. And I was like, it just made sense because I had all, it, it made so many of my identity loss catalysts in my life. It just made it, it gave it a name. And it's like, oh yeah, this is something I've been through a lot and I can help up and other people struggle with it. And it's something I want to explore. I enjoy exploring and and I, I was off to the races. <laughs> it's really beautiful. I feel so honored to be able to have been with you today and um, yeah, really excited about, you know, your work coming out more into the world. This framing I think is very important and, you know, I'm still working on our website, so I can't even send people to unerasure.org yet because there's nothing there, but there will be soon. And uh, if people want to follow us, they can go to uh, Facebook, uh, the Unerasure Project, uh, and project is spelled with a K, uh, the German way, and then also on Instagram. There's not much there yet, but we will have... Uh, when we find a great social, a young person to do mm -hmm. our social media, uh, probably in Germany, we will, uh, there'll be a lot more content that'll start coming out. Um, but this is all, um, we're all in discovery all the time. Discovery and growth and transformation. Terry, this has been fabulous and I was I was worried. I didn't know very much about the topic, but fortunately you could do most of the talking. And, and I'm just so, so glad that you had these breadcrumbs, you know, put in front of you and you're able, willing and able to, to follow them. Yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me to share that with your audience. Okay. And this has been Julie Brown on Bold Becoming. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart. Add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us.
We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes.